Thoughts on the Wheel, where we will spend far too much time thinking out loud about Robert Jordan's The Wheel of Time. I'm James Matisse. And I'm David Arnold. We invite you to join our exploration of the intricate weaves and tangled webs of our favorite 30-pound fantasy series. We'll follow the threads of Jordan's story and pull out not just the what's, but the why's of his character's actions. Our task is to stitch together the ethics, politics, psychology, societal norms, and wool brain decision-making that, woven together, create a multi-hued tapestry of humanity against the looming shadow apocalypse. Today we will talk about the main characters of the Wheel of Time, some common misconceptions about them, and generally be spoiler-free beyond book one. But then at the end, we'll have a spoilers style section where we discuss some characters that we can only discuss fully and have a good conversation about if we're talking about how their arc progresses in later books. As you said, Jordan is a genius when it comes to setting up character arcs and story progression. And there is a lot that happens in book one that takes a very long time to come to fruition. And it's one of those, by the time you get to it in later books, you'll have forgotten. So on a reread, even multiple rereads, it might take you a couple of tranches to try to figure out, oh, is that what that little offhand comment in book one was about as you reach book seven? And so those are really fun to dig into, and they add a lot of value to rereads of the series, but are inherently spoilers. So to add a bit of flavor for those who are rereading the series, eh, we'll point them out put in the spoiler section. So one of the things that marks a lot of the characters, and was a big thing that Jordan put into it, is the effects of guilt and remorse mm-hmm. on the characters for their actions. And so one of the things about early book Egwene, since you don't get her, you don't get Egwene's POV in the first book. And so you see her in circumstances through the eyes of the other characters who are, as we said, young and don't necessarily have the best understanding of themselves, let alone each other. So they're not providing the context for Egwene's actions in the first book that can make her seem a bit more uncaring. So when they go to the Tinkers, when Perrin and Egwene are separated from the group and they're off with the Tinkers, Egwene is enjoying herself with them. She's laughing. She's singing. She's flirting with Aram. Dancing with. And, and Perrin gets offended, supposedly on behalf of Rand. If you're one of the show watchers who likes to love Triangle Think, but perhaps on behalf of himself being jealous about Egwene and Aram. But either way. It's her coping with the trauma they've experienced. This is a place of safety. This is her trying to engender some sense of normality that she knows isn't there. She's just trying to take comfort in the familiar while she can. And it's not that she's heartless and uncaring about it. This is just how she's working through the trauma they've just suffered. But from the outside POV, it comes across like, you know, she doesn't really care and she's just flighty. And and so I think if you distill how she's presented in book one from the other character's POV into just how she acts. She comes across as much less of a caring and considerate person than she otherwise could be. So I always just thought of her as an ambitious girl. That is how she comes off to me. Not in a bad way. In a, uh, in a way similar to young women I've seen who want to become a scientist or a doctor. She's just like trying to do her best at everything and trying to get through it and trying to help people along the way. Oh, I agree. She is definitely ambitious and ambition is not a bad thing. You can do bad things in the name of ambition, but pursuit of your goals, dreaming for something better and working towards them are admirable traits. They just have to be couched appropriately in you know, the right motives. And being driven to excess in pursuit of ambition will cause you to cross some moral boundaries. And I think people need to keep in mind that, like, it is implied. I'm not actually sure because I haven't read the missing Egwene as a child chapter or book. Can you clarify what that is? So when they they tried to make a more young adult version of The Wheel of Time, and they split The Eye of the World into two books... And when they did that, they added a new chapter called Ravens that takes place when five or six years, maybe 10 years before yeah, the world starts, that is Egwene when she's younger and dealing with the Two Rivers stuff. And it gives a POV for Egwene in the first book. I have not read it either. In some universe, the Wheel of Time is what gets jammed onto the end of Harry Potter to make it about like the full development of a human being. <laughs> 
Yeah. Assuming if all the characters had not gone through the seven years of trauma that marked Harry Potter's existence. That's true. Yes. Z- zero of them were brought up in a room under the stairs with only a spider as a friend. <sighs> um, I think that is one thing that will potentially the whole the characters ages don't necessarily line up to their actions or it does i think readers are so used to reading about characters of that age who have already supposed to be developed enough or teenagers who just don't act like teenagers that reading more realistic depictions of some of these kids just feels wrong in a you know reality makes less sense than fiction does at times but no so another thing about Egwene is she's had a long I presume kind of a long relationship with Nenave, sort of brought up to be the next town wisdom. And she then, is due to be the youngest wisdom ever, maybe. So it would be for her to be a young wisdom would require her going somewhere else and taking over because Nynaeve is also very young and won't be getting out of the position anytime soon. True. Which she knows, and she knows that she's going to have to leave the two rivers to I don't, she's going to have to leave Edmonds Field, if not the two rivers. She'll probably just go with the other towns in the two rivers. But she knows that she's going to have to get out, or she's going to be stuck for most of her life as second fiddle. Yeah. And it's not that, you know, she's, oh, she's going to be the apprentice wisdom. It's the, There is literally no option for her to do anything more. Can you imagine the universe where they just stay in the town and, like, you have 47-year-old Nanave and 40-year-old Aquain? <laughs> and spoilers, we do get hints of what that looks like. Uh, it's not good. <laughs> uh, that reminds me of the guy, the PhD, who uh, after 19 years of working for his environment <laughs> advisor, uh, killed him with a hammer because his advisor would never give him the PhD he'd been working for for 19 years. <laughs> It's one of those in an alternate reality, assuming Rand can't channel and the whole rest of the series would not happen, and you just had them in the small town forever. Matt, Egwene, and Nynaeve being in the same town would result in some number of people dying. (laughs) Or Matt and Nynaeve getting married, but... That, most likely. But we'll save that. We'll save uh, goofy headcanon stuff for later. So, one thing I will mention is their relationship to each other, how they defend each other and sort of parent each other a little bit. That feels like a college friendship as opposed to high school friendship. Of who? Uh, just of like the bonds that hold Rand, Matt, Egwene, Perrin, and Nenave together. A college friendship, you can not like somebody, kind of, but like also have their back. Yeah. I would exclude Nynaeve from that just due to her age and position. Yeah, so for for them, she's like, well, for Matt, she's the hot, almost age-inappropriate high school teacher. Or just, you know, the babysitter. Yeah. She's like, in a couple of years, she'll be in your area, buddy. <laughs> Again, I want to save all that talk for later. Yeah, yeah. No, mostly I wanted to talk about just Nenev is kind of an iron-fisted dictator, and Egwene has been serving under her for a while. So we're talking about Egwene. Should I talk about how she starts the series a little bit? Egwene is the daughter of the innkeeper and mayor of Emmonsfield. She's working as the apprentice wisdom, so she is tied to both. She's the daughter of the head of the village council and is lined up as the second-in-command for the largest part of the women's circle so she does have some small town training and responsibility in government as unofficial as it is in the two rivers setting huh i had kind of missed that yeah all i considered was she was the daughter of the mayor and the innkeeper no, she's so she's been apprenticed to administrative stuff yeah and how much of that she's younger than the boys so you know how much of that she's actually picked up growing up probably minuscule but it's there it's a neat little bit of her history i think we mentioned i wasn't sure if we mentioned it yesterday or what i said then the whether we recorded and didn't use or the first episode but she's the one who discovers that the boys are going to leave with moraine she brings herself into the group and she convinces moraine to take her because we find out 
she has the innate ability to channel, which Moraine could sense. So all female channelers can tell just by being around another woman if they can channel or not. And it creates a... It, it's just a psychic feeling they basically have about it, which explains why Moraine lets Egwene come, because she knows that she wants Egwene along to take her to Tarvalon. And then over the course of the first book, whether with Moraine, uh, Egwene starts learning and watching. Moraine takes Egwene aside to start training her a little bit in the One Power. And this opens up Egwene's possibilities of being more than just a wisdom of Emmonsfield or surrounding town. She can now go potentially be an Aes Sedai. And, you know, this kicks off one of her ambitions in the series is to grow into a powerful channeler and become an Aes Sedai. And in the first book, with Moraine as your example, that's a really good ambition to have. Moraine's awesome. Yeah, like, if you hadn't met anybody like Moraine and she just, like, shows up on your doorstep and is like, oh, and by the way, uh, you could be like me and also you're much more powerful than me. Who, would, who wouldn't? So I think, really interesting point. One of the big points about how the Wheel of Time presents itself to me is how the characters play off of each other and the characters being reflections of each other. So you have Egwene's reaction to Moraine, which is admiration, a little bit of devotion, and just aspirational. Then you have Nanine's reaction to Moraine, which is much more confrontational and hostile. And it's interesting to compare and contrast Egwene's relationship to Moraine with Nanaeve's relationship to Moraine. But the reasons for why Nanaeve reacts the way she does, we'll get into with talk about Nanaeve. But just more about Egwene and how she is as a person. When she and Perrin get separated from the group, when before they meet up with the Tinkers, you know, she's looking to Perrin for leadership and comfort. And I think part of that is also that she knows Perrin will do better if he's looking out for somebody. So part of it is looking out to him to, you know, part of it is like letting him take control to just have someone take control. But part of it is also, it gives him something to focus on. And by him playing the protector, it lets him be better at what he has to do than if they were both equally in charge and responsible for what's happening. Quite a better way to say that. But when he goes overboard with it, like when he's insisting that he's always going to walk and Egwene has to ride the entire time. She realizes that's dumb and it's just going to tire him out more. So she insists that they share turns on Bella. And then when they're walking, like both of them, whoever's walking is hunting for them at the time. She's still looking out for both of them. I never read it as Perrin assuming a leadership role. I sort of saw them as kind of co-equals and him just exhibiting the two rivers, you must protect the women thing. So that's an interesting take on Perrin's first leadership role. It's subtle. And again, some of that is because those sections are from Perrin's POV. It would, it would be interesting to see those sections from Egwene's POV. As ridiculous as the series is for length, I think you could equally have a long series if you just flipped who the POV was for every character, for every scene, and you'd get an entirely different experience. But I guess one of the things that we should address for both Nanave and Egwene is the setting of the two rivers and the role women play and how they're treated versus the men. We could probably say that for Nanave's part, because she's representative of the women's circle, and she's a good example of how all the women behave towards the men. We'll say that for later. I mean, what do you mean in particular? Oh, as you said, with the two rivers thing of the men must protect the women, and it is a common thing in the setting as a whole, but specifically the two rivers, is that the more noble aspects of chivalry exist, not the... So the real history of chivalry is not nearly as good as the uh, concept that you get displayed in romantic literature, uh, but the general idea of you should look out for those physically weaker or specifically women more often than not. And you know a man should go out of his way to help a woman and protect her from things. And then you have the setting specific stuff of the Wheel of Time, where in this world, the dragon reborn, who was a man, cause the downfall of civilization and other men who get that level of power or use of power go insane and do bad things and are not as trusted in this setting as they would have been historically. They don't have as much innate power politically. They don't have, they, there are pretty much no male only groups in the setting outside of soldiers. Every other group that has oh, soldiers in the white cloaks, but every other group that has any like secret society stuff think Freemasons, Illuminati, Templars, all that. They're pretty much just women's groups 
and the setting, the Aes Sedai, are like the predominant. You know, they've both replaced academia and the Catholic Church with a, a female-only organization, whereas for the longest time in our world, the Catholic Church was a male-only organization. So a lot of the gender dynamics have been flip-flopped, but not all of them. It's not a, hey, let's just take modern society and flip it to have women instead of men. It is, let's change a couple of fundamental things in history with a gender-specific focus or a sex-specific focus and see how that plays out. So in this setting, women so the setting women are still generally homemakers. There are not that many craftsmen who are women, uh, especially in the two rivers. Uh, women generally stay home and the men generally go out and do whatever profession they have. But when they're in the first book, uh, when they're in the two rivers, you have one of the congers show up and he's talking trash about Nanayuf to Tam. And his wife shows up and it's just like, oh, do you think you want to interfere with women's circle of business? Good luck cooking your own food. Not in my kitchen or sleeping, but not in my house. And like the ownership of the home is associated with the woman as opposed to the man. And a lot of the ideas, even are, well, again, only speaking for American society, but uh, the idea that women mature faster than men is taken to the extreme. And it was funny when I was looking at the, uh, the quote from earlier about the brains maturing. For girls, the brain reaches its size around 11 years old. For boys, the brain reaches its biggest size around 14, which doesn't apply anything about intelligence. But like that type of concept where women mature faster than men is taken to the extreme. And a lot of the women in the setting don't believe that men mature until like the 30s or 40s, whereas women mature like 16 to 18. This is still the case in real life. But with the difference in power between the two sexes and all the other stuff, it instead of it just being the joking take, it is a actual influential element of how their society operates. Young men are not trusted. They need a minder. They need someone to look after them. And that someone needs to either be a much older man or preferably a woman. And that assumption is baked into so many interactions that characters have in the early books. But this gets explored much later in much greater detail throughout the series. So we should talk about Matt at some point a little more. Like, we need to talk about yeah. who he is. Before we wrap up on Egwene, what was your general opinion of her in the first book? I thought it was awesome that she was going to be one of the most powerful Aes Sedai. So my opinion of Egwene was I thought it was awesome that it seemed like maybe there's more than one hero in this series, more than one main character, and maybe Egwene is one of them. Where is this going to go? Like, she's super powerful. And she gets to be one of these people like Moraine. I hope they're all like Moraine. What is Egwene going to be like? That's kind of what I was thinking while I was reading this. I like so, her too. In the first book, it was she was set up as a love interest for Rand. But even when there, there were hints early that it wasn't actually because either of them really wanted to be each other's love interest. It was more that they were just sort of assumed to be by kids interacting, growing up in a small town. If they hadn't left... They were their best options for each other, and they care about each other a lot, but it never really felt like a good romantic love for each other. Yeah, in the books, they sort of treated each other like friends, mostly, uh, but there was like hint of awkward teen romance. But there was also the, you know, uh, the wisdom thing was clearly more important to Egwene than... No, that's from the show. Hmm. Yeah, there's one of those... Like, the other, city, the other towns in the two rivers are like a day or two ride away, which, yes, is far for them. They don't really go that far off from each other. But unless Rand is going to take over Tam's farm, if Rand wanted to set up his own spot at some point, there's no reason that they could not stay together with her being wisdom in somewhere else. But it is one of those. They were assumed to be together. They did not talk through their plans about it. They hadn't really dealt with who they were going to be. They just hadn't really given it much thought because their paths had been set for them when they were young. And they were just going to go with that, however the that default, would have worked. Yeah, the default situation. Okay, I just wanted to get a final take before we moved on to Matt. Yeah, that's a good idea. But no, I, I liked Egwene. I, I wanted her to succeed. I thought she was a good girl, and I thought that, like, oh, cool, good people wield the one power sometimes. So moving on to Matt. The first thing to say about Matt, and this might be minorly spoily, is that the character in the first book is not the character in the third or fourth book. Well, it is. 
there are drastic changes. What do you think is safe to say about Matt? Uh, so first book, Matt is immature, is one of his defining characteristics. One of the first things he had, one of the first things he does in the book is he's talking to Rand and he's talking about the pranks he's going to pull. And Rand's thought is that this wasn't nearly as entertaining as it would have been a year or two ago, but Matt never really grew up. And very, very quickly, once they get out into the real world, Matt starts running into the negative repercussions of that level of immaturity and naivety. Basically, Matt, out of when they're starting to when they go out into the world, they go into the bear lawn for the first time, and they're being told to you know keep their mouth shut and not talk about anything that's been happening. And Matt's the one who starts bragging uh, randomly about some of the stuff they were seeing when everyone else is trying to get him to shut up. He doesn't can't figure out why they're just like calling him a liar or anything or exaggerating, and he's getting offended that his friends are just casting doubt onto his story and it's not until Lance just up the bass he's just like dude shut up because <laughs> yeah matt doesn't assume that talking to a random guy about monsters would get them in trouble because that's just the truth and what stories would have you know he's living out a story currently yeah like everyone... that shit you've heard about in stories i really did that yeah and he doesn't get you know because for him he's always wanted to live out the stories he is the younger he is the immature character. He still lives in the fantasy world more. He's where his parent has taken on the role of blacksmith apprentice and has been training for profession. Whereas Rand has grown up and under and like truly inhabited his role as a farmer and taking over for Tam. Matt is still rebelling against his role. He's trying to shirk. He, despite him like sticking to his obligations, he does try to get out of them all the time, as we had said. So he's trying to get out of chores and he's resentful of having to do like basic stuff around the house and things like that. So he doesn't understand how dangerous the world is, which when we talked about his pranks, and he pranked the White Cloaks. He doesn't realize that, that is a potentially lethal situation because he doesn't have he, he just doesn't get it. So Matt's, you know, fun loving prankster early in the series before he starts to get in the world and getting punished for it. Biggest part, of which being taking the dagger from Shadow Logoth, which he's explicitly warned against. They say not to accept anything. Oh, they're not warning against taking anything in the city. It's after they after he's taken the dagger, Moraine asks if they were given anything. And he says no, because he wasn't given the dagger. He took the dagger. Um, but even because like, they're sitting there and, you know, they go into the room with Mordeth and they have all the treasure around. And Mordeth starts and like Perrin picks up an axe that's like jewel crusted and stuff. Rand is looking at all the gold. Matt's looking at all the gold. And then the, when Mordeth turns on them, uh, Perrin drops the axe, drops whatever he was holding. Rand is trying to struggle with his sword. Matt didn't have a weapon, so he grabs the dagger as a weapon to defend himself, and then doesn't drop it. So it was, you know, partially greed for him taking the dagger, but a lot of it was the, he reached for it as a way to defend himself, and then once he realized that Mordeth was, you know, evil, he was like, well, I guess, you know, it's loot in a historically crazy city, and you know, this is, this is treasure. He refers to treasure multiple times. This is his adventure, and so he thinks that he's, you know, has a right to claim the dagger. And since he stole it, he doesn't think it qualifies, is what Moraine said, of uh, accepting. And from that point, we get a whole long series of Matt being increasingly annoying because he's been infected by a paranoia demon that is driving him nuts and turning him into a terrible person. Yeah, he doesn't really start that descent too much in the first book, does he? Oh, it's entirely in the first book. Oh, it is? Okay. Uh, basically, the entire time they're on the road, once they split from Shadow Logoth, he starts getting more and more paranoid and untrusting and just depressed. And he starts, you know, because they're trying to think if they're going to meet up with their friends again. He's like, they're probably all dead. Everyone's trying to betray us and screw us over. Which, when you're first reading it, in the first stages of him going down that route, you don't realize it's the dagger's effect. Because they are getting constantly assaulted by dark friends. And people are looking to screw them out of the money and stuff. Because they're a bunch of small town rubes moving into bigger and bigger areas. There's easy marks. And Rand goes through a little bit of the same paranoia. So you don't think it's unusual until Matt really dives into it, uh, to the point that he's bedridden in Camelot. And then when Moraine shows up, she removes some of the effect and lessens it, and Matt doesn't get back to that paranoia bit again in the series. So it's only part of the first book that he's that bad. But it it's a long section that drags for a lot of people, so the time that he is under the effect of that is magnified in people's memory. As you said, you didn't even think it was truly just, just the first book that he's that bad in. And it's only a part of the first book. Yeah, so, so Matt Matt is a lanky guy who uses daggers and a quarterstaff. 
kind of a roguish fellow. He can climb stuff. That's that's all later book stuff. Really? Book one, he uses a bow, and that's it. He is the archer uh, of the group, basically. I was used to Rand being the archer of the group because he starts with a bow, also. Yep. And he's the main uh, when they go character. Th- when they go into the waste at the end, Rand has the sword, Parrot uses the axe, and Matt uses the bow. Which is part of the later book Matt is just a different character than early book Matt. Like, his quarterstaff skills don't get mentioned until he breaks him out as a badass in book three. His dagger skills don't get mentioned until he breaks him out as a badass in book three. Yeah, he is a little bit of a sleeper. Now, uh, does he do much gambling? Book three. Not until book three? Uh, he dices a bit and gambles a bit with the soldiers in Faldara at the beginning of book two, but then he doesn't get a... He spends most of book two dying, so he doesn't really get a chance. It's not until <laughs> book three that he really gets the gambling trait fully unlocked. I guess we don't get to fully discuss Matt until book three. Like, the yeah, Matt uh, who will go through the rest of the books. Yeah. The seeds of who Matt are are planted in book one, but those are just the seeds of the core of his character. Not anything else about him. And it feels like something as fundamental as like tapping somebody on the shoulder and saying, hey, you, you're going to save the world. So we're showing Matt being genuinely a prankster, but also genuinely a good kid as the basis to think about who he becomes later and sort of imprint that base on him. So while they're traveling and he's getting deeper and deeper into the effects of the dagger, he starts complaining more. He starts annoying Rand. He starts being distrusting and just a true burden on Rand. But then Rand becomes ill and Matt takes care of him still, despite it being like he even has to claim that Rand has the plague so they don't get thrown out of an inn at one point. He prevents Rand from dying from the elements. And it would be much, much easier for him to leave Rand behind. But even in the depths of the dagger's effect, he's still loyal to his friend. He'll complain about it the entire time, but he wants to do the right thing. Yeah, uh, I didn't really focus on Matt too much in book one, except like he was the the poor guy who picked up the horror dagger. <laughs> I wasn't even sure if he was going to make it, so I wasn't sure if I should invest myself in this Matt guy yet. <laughs> But I liked Rand. He had some intriguing dreams. I was actually about to mention the dreams, because all three boys were getting visited throughout the first book by Balzamon, the Dark One, in their dreams. And he's trying, and it's obvious that he wants one of them specifically, but is interested in all three. And he's trying to figure out which one of the three is the one he wants. And all three of the boys are hiding this information from Moraine for the first half of the book. Yeah. And the boys are genuinely getting freaked out at a lot of this stuff. I think one of the defining characteristics of Book One Matt that I've not really seen mentioned much is that he is, of all the main characters, the one most frequently being described as scared. I got got kind of a Scooby-Doo, not Scooby-Doo, but Shaggy from Scooby-Doo vibe from Matt. A little bit. (laughs) Honestly, not not a bad... uh... parallel really also rinse went from uh, discworld is the same fundamental archetype (laughs) he's one of the pinnacle examples of uh, bravery is not acting without fear it's acting in spite of fear and he will you know rise to the occasion when he has to let's just assume Uh, he was covering rand's position with his bow while he made rand fight or face the white cloaks alone (laughs) Uh, again i i think he assumed that rand was going to run and then when Rand didn't, he saw it as sling. So yeah, he could have like pelted one of the quite close to the rock yeah. at that point. But I, again, neither of the boys thought the confrontation could get as serious as the confrontation could have gotten. So there was no need for Matt to come out at that point. And in fact, Matt coming out might have made things worse. Yeah. The last point I wanted to make about Matt being a good friend is while when they get to Kamon, he gets really, really bad with the effects of the dagger to the point that when they all be back up, all the friends reunite, they show up and Matt is just curled into a ball on the bed and is just being absolutely horrible to all of them. And then Moraine shows up and he tries to kill her with the dagger before Land stops him. And they leave and Moraine does the healing magic on him. And he comes back down. He's like, I really don't remember much of what the last you know couple of weeks of traveling have been, but I feel like I was kind of a dick and I'm really, really sorry about that. <laughs> And he is actually, like, truly, even though he knows he wasn't under control of his own facilities, he still 
apologizes to his friends for his behavior, and he means it. Well, and any, you know, any decent human being would. And it, it shows that Matt is a decent human being. I like that there is this equation of distrust and paranoia with a sort of toxic evil that spreads. Yeah, it's a good use of fear being insidious and paranoia being contagious. But Shadow Logoth was a city that turned. It was one of those, if you let yourself do evil to defeat evil, you might become the evil you sought to defeat. When they were fighting against the Trolloc Wars and opposing the Dark One, the city turned on itself in the name of good to purge out anything that was bad. And they just became so consumed with that that they became a rival evil to the Dark One. So I was just going to mention that my my main memory of Shadar Logoth is the notion of white stone layered in dust, like this completely abandoned huge city with huge buildings. It left a mark on me to read that. It was size of setting that I was not familiar with, and it it did evoke a certain kind of broader sense of horror than a jump scare or like a somebody's gonna get you vibe. It really brought out the, oh, the whole place can be creepy and just being there can be dangerous. With, you know, for, as far as Tolkien parallels go, uh, this is basically the Barrowite, where after they've gone out from the Shire and they fall into a tomb, that's where they get sting and stuff. Instead of finding Sting, they're in a... Instead of being in a tomb, they're in a city that is essentially a tomb. Instead of finding a magical dagger of good, they find a magical dagger of evil. But the scale of it and the fact that it's this ancient civilization that was thriving. It was a large... Considering what we've seen so far are the two rivers being small towns, villages, to Bearlawn, which is a very small town... And then just this massive, massive city that is completely abandoned. That is it. It's a good horror element because people would have to move back in if it was possible. There is something here making it be empty. And it's lasted for a long, long time. Yeah. So also the fact that Lan and Moraine, as we've mentioned before, are kind of afraid of going in. And now that I'm reading through again... Even the the reason they go in there is because the Mergerol and and the Trollocs won't follow them there, which have been the nastiest horror creatures we've seen so far. But it's a nice touch because it's not only, oh, we should go there and then it's scary. It's, oh, hey, our two guides, Lan and Moraine, are scared of this place. They've been badasses this whole time and they're afraid. That's probably meaning something important. And then, oh, hey, the bad guys we've been running from for the entire book, who are terrifying, won't come in here under their own volition. This place is bad news. But just how desperate Moraine is that she's willing to take this risk as their option of safety because they're going to not... If they stayed outside of Shadow Logoth, they would die to the Trollocs and Mergerol. Like This was their only route for safety, and it was punching them into a different type of danger. There are no good options ahead of them. So I don't know how much of it is obvious in book one, but I think the character of the original Immense Fielders that Matt is most similar to is actually Nynaeve. I think they have a lot in common, despite being apparent opposites. Matt thinks he's a giant slacker and always just you know takes the easy path. But when push comes to shove, he does do the hard thing. He just doesn't like it and will complain about it the whole way. So you think Matt's self-image is generally just like happy-go-lucky. He just has no self-awareness. Yeah. Okay. I buy that. It's book one Matt. Yeah. Book one Matt. It is Matt gets different as he experiences the world. Yeah. Like you said, it is all just kind of an adventure to him until a certain point. It's like, oh, this is what they mean by adventure. This is harmless. Yeah. In the stories, everyone always, you know, the plucky kid who goes out and does the risky stuff gets rewarded for it. Because that's how the stories go. But no, so the other connection I see between Matt and Nynaeve in book one is they are both overcompensating. In book one, I think Matt is, is that he's described often as being afraid of things. And so I think he's acting out just to show to himself and to show everyone else that he's not afraid, despite being afraid. Nynaeve has a giant, giant inferiority complex. And 
a lot of 90s issues are projection and overcompensating for her insecurities, but she doesn't realize that and refuses to admit it to herself, just like Matt. Yeah, but some part of her does understand it. Like, she's got some physical body memory thing because she has this braid tugging that she does. So the braid tugging, which is a common complaint in the series, is for how often it happens. I've been trying to go back with this reread of the series and identify the reasons why certain things get done and what they mean. So with the Two Rivers in general, women get their hair braided as a coming-of-age thing. When the women's circle decides that a young woman is old enough to be considered an adult, they braid their hair. And every woman in the Two Rivers will braid her hair. And leave it braided. To the point that Rand or Mark's the only time he's ever seen a woman with unbraided hair is when Moraine shows up. Because she doesn't have braided hair. Nynaeve, despite being the wisdom, is... Well, I think one of the things with Nynaeve is that she looks young for her age. And she's also one of the youngest wisdoms ever in the Two Rivers. And the wisdom, just by you know the nature of the title, generally you associate age with wisdom. So she's already being put in an ironic position where her age doesn't match her title. And one of the signs that, you know, since she does look young, one of the signs that she is a woman is her braid. And I think a lot of the braid tugging is basically because not only does she tug her braid, the p- people mention in the books that she's like brandishing her braid or she's like pulling it in front of her or stuff. And I think that's her way of either reminding herself or showing to whoever she's talking to that she is actually old enough to be considered a woman and should be taken as an adult. And I think that's what the braid tugging started out as, is just a physical reminder of her station and age. Almost like she's having to mentor herself. Oh, it's you know, a badge of office, almost. That and her stick. Before you meet Nynaeve, the only things you hear about her from people are that she's too young, she's angry and hits people with a stick occasionally, and that part of the reason people are questioning her ability and her competence is because wisdom is supposed to be able to read the wind, or listen to the wind, and predict the weather and things. And with the winter having been going on unnaturally long, people are worried about it and asking Nynaeve when it's going to break. And they've done it enough and done it insultingly enough that she stopped answering entirely, which as we find in the series, the reason the weather is being so bad is because the dark one is starting to screw up the world. So the ability to listen to the wind is not as accurate as it would otherwise be. So the, the world is conspiring to make Nynaeve appear less competent than she is She's already younger than she would normally be for the role. She looks young, and you know she's having to overcompensate for that because she's supposed to be an authority figure in the town, but her authority is purely ceremonial at this point. So one, one trope that I saw subverted here that I really liked was, like in Harry Potter, there's, no, there's kind of an adult to go with him to school, but there's no adult he checks in with during the school year. And it struck me when I was reading this, kind of on this reread, like there's never a concerned adult that goes with the the young child who discovers they have magical powers, which is completely unrealistic. What town is going to be like, oh yes, Timmy, go off with John there, who you just met, who told you you're a wizard. But Nanave is like... She's doing her job as the town wisdom when she chases off after these kids who have been basically... Whisked off into the night by the magic lady. Yeah, exactly. Just whisked. That is a good word for it. Which which makes me question all the other books I've read (laughs) where the kid just goes off and starts doing things by themselves with zero adults thinking, where is that kid? Where most of the kids do tell their legal guardian, whoever that may be, that they're leaving. Oh, definitely Gwen leaves a note. Rand tells Tam. And as Nynaeve says when she shows back up after tracking him down, you know, the village council was still trying to determine who to send before she took it on herself to go. And it was very much like the whole town was going to be like, hey, yeah, our kids just got taken away after some really bad shit went down. And even though they told us why they were going, we still want to go along to help and take care of them. And basically the only reason you don't have Matt and parents, uh, Matt and Rand's dad's tracking them down for the whole series is because Nynaeve sort of took the uh, initiative to do it while Tam was still recovering from the healing. Yeah, she actually, she kind of has the, she has a little bit of the feel of a bounty hunter almost. (laughs) (laughs) 
I can see it. <laughs> Bounty hunter slash nanny. She is what happens if you cross Mary Poppins with Boba Fett. See, uh, okay, you don't want to. You don't want me to get started on Boba Fett. <laughs> you do not want me to get started on Boba Fett because my first question is, who cares about Boba Fett? <laughs> and that just uh, there's nothing that makes Boba Fett Boba Fett. He's just the first bounty hunter who came to mind. The, okay, well, yours is cooler than mine, because mine was uh, the babysitter in Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead. <laughs> or no, sorry, Adventures in Babysitting. So one of the defining characteristics of Nynaeve in the first book is how much she doesn't like uh, Moraine. Yeah, she really doesn't like Moraine. Um, and to the extent that she flatly denies Moraine when Moraine tells her she can channel. And it's funny, like, their hostility starts before you meet either of them. It's when Rand is being told about Moraine being in uh, the Two Rivers, because when Moraine shows up, she asks Nynaeve, oh, she talks to Nynaeve, but it's one of the first people she talks to and refers to her as child, which, as we've established with Nynaeve's insecurity about her age, is the single worst thing you can do. And that's their first encounter with each other. And even though Moraine apologizes for it, it just set the stage for their behavior. Well, so Although as we go ahead. sorry, uh, I was just going to say, so as the leadership figure, we are we are kind of shown that we are shown that like she actually really does have a reputation she needs to protect because her ability to do her job as wisdom depends on it. And Moraine also has that going on, but again, at a world level rather than a Two Rivers level. And so Nynaeve both recognizes that Moraine is much better at everything she can do, but also she recognizes, and this is my reading of it, that Moraine is going to teach her whether she likes it or not if she stays around Moraine, which... I was talking to James earlier. I really identify with that as sort of a rebellious student. Um, if I find a teacher who will stick with me despite my kind of awkward learning style, I will hound them. <laughs> I won't leave them alone. I will learn what they have to offer, despite kind of disliking them the whole time. And I, that's that's kind of what I felt with Nynaeve. I don't know. Which I kind of got in general, but not with how it applies to Moraine. Because Nynaeve and Moraine really don't spend much time together. It's more um, what Moraine represents to Nynaeve. Ah, that I would agree with. Uh, as well as with Nynaeve's just latent insecurities and things. Moraine is everything Nynaeve wishes she could be. Where Moraine is, Moraine is small. She's one of the shortest people we meet in the books. So she looks more childlike, just in stature. Um, Nynaeve resorts to anger and overcompensating for anything that she's insecure about with anger or acts of violence. Moraine doesn't. Moraine is calm and composed. And the more Nynaeve tries to rile Moraine up, the more Moraine just does the killer with kindness thing. And it forces Nynaeve to reflect on how ineffective and potentially childish she's currently acting, which just makes her angrier at Moraine. Uh, and as you had said, with your admiration of Moraine as a character, her ability to walk in and just dominate a place with her presence and just the nature of who she is commands respect that Nynaeve feels that she has to personally fight for. And she wishes she had Moraine's demeanor. She also wishes she had Moraine's warder. <laughs> I was just about to say. <laughs> oh. So if I did have a complaint about Robert Jordan's writing style... It is that he chooses to leave a lot unwritten and will give you some seeds of what happens and then cut the scene before it comes to fruition. Or you'll just get into, you know, oh, hey, this character did go went and did something you know, like a month ago that we're just now learning about. But we don't see any of the actual things that happen. We just find the repercussions of it. Nynaeve starts falling for Lan over the course of their travels in the first book. To the point that they're declaring their love for each other at the end of the first book, which the other complaint being Robert Jordan does not necessarily write romance, at least the beginning stages of romance. Well, he just kind of skips into the relationship stage. So counterpoint, Robert Jordan writes how much Rand would notice Nynaeve and Elan's romance developing probably pretty well. 
Yeah. And especially with them being split up and separate, like you, you only get a couple of scenes of Nynaeve and Land together from Nynaeve's POV. But they are potent. Like, he does make sure to point it out. Like, Nynaeve experiences a certain kind of satisfaction when, uh, when Land brings her horse back after having tied it up for her. And he notices um, she's crying at the same time she does. <laughs> oh, it's, she had a sense of satisfaction for being able to sneak up on Lan, and then she gets a sense of annoyance that he found her a horse as easily as he did. Meanwhile, from and he, she's also annoyed that Lan doesn't make a big deal of it, and is like she feels that he's condescending to her when he compliments her on her like woodcraft and stuff. Whereas it's actually Lan actually complimenting her on it and being impressed with her. And one of the easiest ways to understand what Nynaeve is, who Nynaeve is as a character, is to read whatever thought she's having. And assume the opposite. There's a part early when she and Moraine and Land have been traveling where she realizes she's annoyed with Moraine for showing her up. And she's like, we should just get rid of Moraine. Uh, Land and I can you know, do this on our own. There's no reason for the ice to die to get into this. And that's totally the only reason I want this. And I definitely don't want Land for any other reason. And she blushes and gets annoyed and like, drops that turn of thought instantly. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean... I, I I think that that's a fantastic statement about American hypocrisy in general. Uh, like I, we all know a lot of people like this. I do this sometimes. So one of the parts where Matt had the dagger, and when he gets into Kaimun, and it's the effect of Shadar Logoth turning him, the effects of Shadar Logoth on Matt when they show up to meet him, when the friends show up, uh, he starts talking to all of them, and is just like rooting into their insecurities. And one of the things he does with Nynaeve is start mentioning how pretty she is and that now she realizes that she's pretty. And he's like, a wisdom shouldn't think of herself as a woman, especially a pretty woman. But you do now, don't you? And it's because of Lan. And as I said, they, they dance with her at one point in Bear Lawn, and they're all amazed that like Nynaeve can dance. Because she's had to take on the role of wisdom, she has separated herself from anything she refuses as childlike including budding romances or anything. So Lan is, as an outsider for Two Rivers, and being just the badass, awesome dude that Lan is, Nynaeve starts falling for him. And this is the first time she's let herself do that, and she's still fighting it. Like She doesn't want to admit that she's having a child, a girl-like crush on a guy, and that she's starting to fall in love, because it's just not what she ever allowed herself to do while she was the wisdom of the Two Rivers. It's not until she gets outside that she's able to do that. And the one thing that you notice about these kids is they don't spend any time regretting that they're out on this adventure. Um, they do spend uh, they, some time wishing they were in a more comfortable place. Uh, like and they when, do get a little bit homesick and stuff. Like I would, I definitely say that they do regret going on the adventure. At times, sure. But they also don't run home. Uh, they don't really get the opportunity to. The only one... like. Moraine and Egwene, uh, and Egwene are the only ones who are ever offered a chance to leave, and they both choose to stay. The boys would probably love to go home, they just know they can't. So, part of people's annoyance with Nynaeve early is just how belligerent she can be, and how annoying she can be, and how annoying she can be to the main characters who you're rooting for. But one of the things that makes me love Nynaeve much more so on read throughs, uh, rereads, is when she shows up to Bear Lawn and she figures out that. Moraine is looking for anyone who was born outside the two rivers. And Rand at this point has heard from his from Tam that Tam is not actually his father. Nynaeve knows this and keeps it a secret because she's loyal to the two rivers folks. And yes, she should have told Moraine. It would have helped a lot. But her loyalty to her people and Rand specifically is so strong that she's willing to risk basically anything to stand by her people. So while Nynaeve might be an annoying character who you don't always want to stay around, she will always always have your back yeah she was kind of like a little rambo-y at times. <laughs> like <laughs> she's kind of a badass she tracks everybody down <laughs> kind of on her own which one of those early book installment things sort of like the staff that moraine has you have the thing where she had healed Egwene when they when Egwene was a child and dying which was the first time many of it ever channeled and it had established a slight bond between the two so that she could almost be drawn to her, and it helped her track them to a degree, in addition to her general woodscraft of being able to track. So like that, She basically tracked them, knew where they were going, 
was smart enough to figure out which direction they would take. And then once you got to Barlon, it was the draw of that connection that got them in. They got her to the right end to find them. But yeah, so as you said, the Rambo part, if you want to talk about her involvement in the White Cloak rescue. I don't recall the specifics of it, to be honest. So as part of her ongoing flirtation with Lan, when they finally track down Egwene and Perrin, who have been taken prisoner by the White Cloaks, Lan goes in to free Perrin and Egwene, and he lets Nynaeve go and rescue the horses. He trusts Nynaeve enough to have her sneak into an enemy camp and secure a mount out from under their armed guards. And she not only does that, she recognizes that Bella is there, realizes that it's not just Perrin, it's probably a Perrin and a Gwen. So she takes multiple mounts, uh, which delays her long enough that Lan is ready to defy Moraine and abandon her long enough to go rescue Nynaeve before Nynaeve just rides in, which is definitely part of their ongoing, like, hey, they really care about each other. So another general complaint of, oh, I want to put this down as a mark in Nynaeve participating in a rescue. Because I want to have a running count of who rescues who, how often over the course of the series. Because people get taken captive a lot. And Nynaeve and Lan and Moraine teaming up to rescue Egwene and Perrin is the first mark in the rescue arcs. Plus one to Nynaeve writing to the rescue. (laughs) Yeah. The reason we know so much about these characters is because they're mostly seen through the eyes of Rand, who the first book is... Mostly told from the point of view of Rand. About 80% of which. So we were trying to come up with misconceptions about Rand, but he's a pretty solidly written kind of hero character. He is a good kid. He knows how to shoot a bow very well, so we know he's kind of zenish. He he puts in the hours of practice that it requires to be good at things. We're, we're shown him helping his father with a load of brandy that they're bringing in for the Beltine celebration. And he's got a very good relationship with uh, Tam, and then later with Tom Marilyn, the Gleeman. Yeah, he's presented off the start as your basic generic fantasy everyman character. But it's one of those, with him being the point of view character, you have to like him enough to get through the first book. Because if you don't like Brand or any of his stuff, that's 80% of the book you're not going to enjoy. And I, don't know, I think on we've, I think we mentioned it a little bit in the first episode, I'm not sure if we made another cut, of the meta-narrative of The Wheel of Time, where it's being presented as the hero's journey. And just the book itself, the books themselves kind of present that. So Rand is presented as your average run-of-the-mill fantasy character before you start learning more about him and you realize that he's probably not going to go the normal fantasy route. Is, yeah, he's presented as a good kid. He loves his dad. And in the first hundred pages, you find out that it's not his dad. Or rather, it is suggested. Uh, it's, it's confirmed. He doesn't believe it. So one of the things, one of Rand's main arcs in the first book is coming to terms with who he is. And it's one of those... If you didn't pick up on the fact that it transitions from Luz Theron dying to starting Rand's POV as being a probable hint of who Rand is. Until uh, you just mentioned it? No, I had not considered that. (laughs) (laughs) Screw you, James. Sorry. (laughs) But over the course of the first book, it is definitely... It's hinted at that Rand is probably the Dragon Reborn, and at the very end it is confirmed by Moraine. Yeah. But early in the book when you when they're talking about like the Shadow and the Dark One, the dragon is routinely mentioned in the first in the same breath. The dragon is a feared source of evil for most people in the setting. And it's basically it's not only the trope that Robert Jordan was trying to explore of, you know, the chosen one being told that he's the chosen one and how does his, how does he react? This is almost like being told you're the Antichrist and how do you react? And so, so much of Rand's world, it's not only, you know, oh, hey, we're we established a normal setting. He's this good kid in his starting town and everything's normal. He gets taken out of the town by the inciting incident of the Trolloc attack and has to go out in the magical world, the greater world and all that. But he's also cut out of his ties to his family when Tam is injured and ranting and telling him the story about how he found Rand. And Rand's in denial. Uh, he refuses to believe that Tam is not his father. He refuses to believe all the bad shit that's implied about his future by being a mannequin channel. And him having to slowly discover who he actually is is a big part of his growth in the book. 
Yeah, he uh, he definitely goes through some stuff. Even in the even in the first book, there are super disturbing dreams, um, and of course, all of the dangerous action scenes, and most dangerously, finding out that he can channel. So yeah, there are some ways that we can tell that Rand's a good kid. He does get freaked out at things. He gets freaked out at a murder all. He's not immune to the fear stare. So part of Rand's progression is he channels a couple of times by accident in the book. And every time he does, it's to help somebody else or to save himself and someone else simultaneously. Which is kind of funny. We learn later in the books that the normal way women learn to channel or the, the Wilders who first learned to channel by doing something on their own comes in one of two forms. That's generally either being able to listen in on somebody else or get someone to do what they want. So a minor form of compulsion or suggestibility or being able to listen or see at a distance. With Rand, it's making sure Egwene's horse keeps up with the rest of them so she doesn't get left behind and die or saving Matt and his own life by getting rid of a threat to them. And also those, uh, one of those with that applies to Nynaeve we didn't bring up, and that Nynaeve's first instance of channeling is they said to save Wayne's life, and that need to heal people defines her so much later. But I, I just think it's interesting that of the two characters who just learned to channel on their own that we see from the main cast, they're both doing it to help other people out as just a general, hey, these are good people. Uh, one of the things I liked about her is she always is wanting to learn about new cultures and she asks questions as to why uh, the people do what they do. I was just looking at when she meets Ingtar. She's like, why does he say peace that way? Or something like that. Did they all say it that way? And that's a theme that continues in the following books. I had forgotten that she did that in the first book or just never really put it together. Yeah, I just read that and I was like, huh, I didn't realize she did that in the first book. But um, also when they're with the Tinkers... She learns a little bit. About, like she, she melds with them and picks up some of their ways. One of the fun things in the first book is just the types of things Rand gets into, or the types of encounters Rand has. Most specifically, like he meets up with men, and men gives him a bunch of prophecies which freak him out. Uh, he meets up with Elaine and is just comically in over his head, or is he just wanted to climb a wall to see if he could see Loghain from a distance, mm-hmm. and falls into the palace of Camelin and meets the heir to the throne and her brother and then meets, you know, Galad as the third member of the children of the royal family. He's taken in front of the queen and the queen's advisor who's a red-eyed Sedai when he's already worried that he can channel. You know, I didn't think about Elida in that context, but now that you mention it... <laughs> oh, yeah, it's comical. pretty much like... Because they go there, he's trying to stay out of... He's trying not to make a name for himself at all. He also can't afford for anyone to recognize that he's allied. He knows Tom Marilyn, since Tom is persona non grata at uh, Camelin at this point. And he stumbles into literally the most attention he could possibly land himself into. Mm-hmm. And then Elaine has to plead for his life. One of the things I'd never really noticed, and I guess some of it's just fantasy trope, and some of it's just not what I was paying attention to when I was reading it through earlier the first time first few times when I was younger, but uh, Rand has to be super attractive because women are constantly falling for him. Mm-hmm. Like everywhere they go, you know, one of the point where they're traveling with uh, Matt and, you know, playing for their supper and stuff, like random farm girls are flirting with them to the point that like one of their moms is like, Hey, yeah, you're going to sleep with me tonight. So you don't go off and do anything stupid with these kids. Mm-hmm. You've just shown up. Uh, and Elaine tells them that, you know, when she's after she finished pleading for his life, and Morgaze lets him go from the castle, she's like yeah, mom might not let me do that if she knew how uh, pretty I thought you were. And like throughout the series, or throughout the first book, more often than not, if Rand's meeting a woman, she's being flirtatious with him or trying to mother him. It's like the two interactions people have with Rand or kill him. So the three interactions women have with Rand are either to mother him, to flirt with him, or to try to murder him. So back to Moraine, um, you mentioned she has some kind of uh, compulsion, minor compulsion that she lays on the boys with this coin. Can you tell me more about that? She specifically says, 
Consider this a token and keep it with you, so you will remember that you have agreed to come to me when I ask it. There's a bond between us now. And then when they look at the coins, Matt and Rand realize they've been given a Tarvalin mark, whereas Ewan was just given a silver penny. And Ewan's original thought is, oh, I wonder what I can buy from the peddler with this. Whereas Rand, for some reason, doesn't want to spend it. He doesn't know why, even though he has like no other use for money than spending it. He doesn't want to spend this coin because Moraine said that he should keep it with him. Wait, did Moraine give Pat and Fane a tracking device? No. You sure? <laughs> if yes. the kid wanted to spend it with the peddler. That's the thing. She gave Ewan a coin, just a random coin without any magic associated with it. When she gave them the coin and the way she pressed it into their hands and the moment that she took with it was her putting the spell onto the coin to allow her to track it. And those are the two coins that Matt and Rand don't spend on Pat and Fane. Yeah, it's funny because it's a short scene after they talk, but Rand has a couple of points in it where he's feeling and thinking things and he doesn't know why. Like they seem out of character to him. And it's all related to what Moraine says. But I also think there's a a Taviran moment because he asks her why she's in the two rivers. And part of her she starts telling him the response of, you know, being a student of history and going there for stories and things. And he digs in a little bit deeper about it. And her response is that as the wheel of time turns, places wear many names, men wear many names, many faces, different faces, but always the same man, which, you know, maybe means that she's looking for someone who might be reincarnated. Uh, but the reason I say it was a Taviran thing is Rand stared at her, unable to say a word, even to ask what she meant. He was not sure she had meant for them to hear. Moraine focused on them again, and all three gave a little shake as if waking up. So I think Moraine got caught in a little bit of Taviran talking. It was one of the aspects that one of the common aspects of the Taviran influence is people saying stuff that they could say, but generally wouldn't say. And when Rand asked her that, he feels that he was he regrets asking her a question because she didn't want to talk at the moment. But I think she gets Taviran into basically saying that she's looking for someone who's been reincarnated. Yeah. There was a fun tidbit before that point where we learn later how Powden Fane every year he's been one of his jobs is to try to find the boys for the Dark One and how the Dark One's been like distilling his memories every year and honing in on who he needs to find. In the chapter where Powden Fane is introduced, Rand remarks that it wasn't until last year that he started viewing Matt and Rand as men. Yeah. That's not why he noticed them. Because every year when he went back for the Shadow Logoth, his memories were being like refined and honed to turn him into the tracker that he becomes for Rand. And that's his honing in on the the couple of people who are the candidates that he's looking for. That's why he notices them that time, because he's been conditioned. And that year was the one where he was like, hey, I think it's one of these kids. And so he's being sent in this year to find to narrow down and specifically find who he's looking for. And the um, the raven who's watching them, when they leave, when they step out of the inn, when, when they meet Moraine, they try to hit the raven with rocks, and it's like sidesteps, then flies off towards the mountains. They're like, that's weird behavior. And you learn later that, you know, uh, ravens and rats are the eyes of the dark one. The raven sees them and flies off west, which is the direction of the portal stone that the Trollocs attacked from. So it was flying to report seeing them in town that day, because that night's when they attack. Interesting. Is, because Pod and Fane's still in town, so he could not have told the Trollocs that they were there necessarily, and so they snuck away or a Merdral came in to tell them or something. I think it was the raven reporting back that precipitated the attack. There were like three or four different ways that the attack could have been spawned. Or if we wanted to do... I think we could save that one where she's talking about the compulsion-ish aspect for why some of the general distrust that the boys have for Moraine and how it's justified to a degree. That's one of the other complaints with the early book is that the kids are a bunch of shits to Moraine who's just trying to help them. Well, But I think it's because people trust... People trust the Aes Sedai and the Gandalf analogy. You trust Gandalf. Of course he wants what's good for you. It is not in line with how the series is presenting the Aes Sedai. The Aes Sedai are not trustworthy, good, upstanding people. They are people with power. Yeah, you're supposed to be afraid of them. Yeah. Hmm. Which all the characters are. And you know, especially with Tom instilling all the distrust of the Aes Sedai due to his interactions with them and his past with them. And the fact that Rand can channel means you know he's under threat by the Aes Sedai. And but, then there's also the secret motivation for Tom to want to protect Rand. Yeah, it's a general disconnect between the reader and the character, I think. 
and that the reader is much more likely to trust Moraine than any of the characters are, especially in the male characters. The female characters are much more likely to trust an Aes Sedai than the male characters are, and I think some of that inherent distrust gets lost in the translation from character to reader. Some of what the villagers say about Aes Sedai makes you expect, like, a crazy death robot that just comes into town and indiscriminately starts killing people. Or at least men who can channel are seen as that, and then women aren't far, far behind. They are definitely the subject of a lot of rumor and a lot of mistrust. Essentially, they're walking demigods. They are the superheroes of the setting. And is a setting closer to the boys than it is to uh, Superman, where... Yes, they're superheroes. Yes, they can save us from the evil people. But um, most people never interact with any Trollocs or Fades or anything, or men who can channel. So what need do they have of superheroes if they don't have any supervillains to fight? Mm. So you have the general distrust of... Which is basically the difference in how Aes Sedai are viewed in... The farther you get away from the Borderlands with the Blight and the Trolloc raids and things, the more distrustful of Aes Sedai people can become whereas the Borderlanders love the Aes Sedai. Thank you for joining us to talk about Robert Jordan's epic The Wheel of Time. Email your comments and questions to nerds at wheelthought.com or visit us on the web at wheelthought.com. Thoughts on the Wheel was recorded, edited, and produced by David Arnold and James McTice. Intro music was Cinematic Time Lapse by Lexa Music, and outro music is Inspiring Cinematic Asia, also by Lexa Music. The Wheel of Time copyright is held from 1990 to present by the Bandersnatch Group Incorporated.